You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Then working in my community, it's not something I went to school to learn. Uh, it's something which was in me. I'm that person who can just act because I see something. I don't wait someone to tell me to do something. When people come here as refugees, they get resettled in certain cities. And a lot of people who have been resettled in other cities have told me that they moved to Maine because they like the community here. It's quieter, there's less violence, they like the school systems, they really want a good place for their children. So I think that's much more important to them than the weather. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 68, New Beginnings, airing for the first time on December 30th, 2012. A new year is almost upon us, and with it, the possibility of new beginnings. This week, we're inspired by an individual who has had many new beginnings in his life, new U.S. citizen Maxwell Chikuta, formerly of the Democratic Republic of Congo. We understand the challenges of new beginnings better with Susan Roche, legal director of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. As a physician, I understand that new beginnings are happening within us all the time. Our cells, in fact, regenerate themselves fully every seven years. So we are equally building new cells and losing new cells all the time. We can't help but be in transition and thus have available to us the possibility of new beginnings. What we do with these new beginnings is kind of up to us. We can value our bodies. We can take care of them. We can call them our temples. Um, we can value the lives that we have. We can value the people in our lives. Um, and we can view our new beginnings as opportunities and view our relationships as treasures. Or we can do the opposite. We can just let life live us. But I know that people who are listening to this show aren't that sort. They are the sort who value the opportunities presented by new beginnings. In my own life as a physician, I spent time first in the field of family medicine, received training in preventive medicine and public health, and worked as a medical director for the county jail and also as a medical advisor for Maine Health. This was just one of my lives as a physician. I know that I have many lives ahead of me. The life that I've been embarking on for the past several years is as a physician trained in acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine who also practices Qigong. I have a medical practice at The Body Architect, and all of my training as a traditional doctor and also as a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner has enabled me to bring a higher level of integrative care to people. I also engaged in creating a new beginning when I became the host of this radio show. And I engaged in new beginnings for the birth of each of my th three children. All of these new beginnings were challenging and created sometimes obstacles and I experienced fear, but but certainly I experienced no more challenges, obstacles, or fear than Maxwell Takuta as he traveled from the Democratic Republic of Congo to the United States with his family. I think that we can take the chance and create new things for ourselves and enjoy our lives, enjoy our relationships, enjoy our communities. Or again, we can decide that we're going to stay stuck. But your bodies are going to keep doing the cell regeneration, no matter what you attempt to keep them stuck in. They are gonna keep regenerating those cells every seven years. So we encourage you to do what your body wants you to do, which is embrace these new beginnings throughout your life. We hope you enjoy our conversations with Maxwell Chikuta, 
formerly of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and also Sue Roche of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. As an integrative medicine physician at The Body Architect, I ask my patients when they first come to see me what their goals are, what they hope to accomplish in their lives. But I also ask them what their values are, what are they passionate about. When people are seeking to make change, when they're seeking to create new beginnings, they first need to go deep within themselves and actually find out what it is that makes them want to live. And when I say live, I mean live. If you're considering making new beginnings in your life, I'd love to help you out with this or listen to what makes you really want to live. Give me a call at The Body Architect, 207-774-2196, or learn more about us on doctorlisa.org. As we head into 2013, we're talking about new beginnings because everybody's thinking about how they can um, do new things in their lives. The person that I have across the microphone from me is somebody who I I think has had many new beginnings in his life. I first heard about Maxwell Chikuta through a column that Bill Nemitz had done in the Portland Press-Herald. And I was very impressed with the story of this individual who became a U.S. citizen on September 21st, 2012. I'm honored to have you in the studio with me, Maxwell. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. Maxwell, we're talking about new beginnings, and I I know you've had so many. You originally are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it sounds like you've had quite a journey. Yes, uh, it's a long journey for me to be here today. So tell me about that. Tell me about what it was like to, first of all, what it was like to live there. Yeah, in the Congo, uh, unfortunately, like everybody else, you live with your family, you have parental love. I missed that when I was a kid. Um, The reason being that my parents divorced when I was eight. When I was 10, we had a civil war, and uh, I missed missed that. So I didn't grow up with parental love. And grow up in the third world country, it's really difficult. I decided to go into the street uh, when I was almost uh, 10 and a half. So um, living the street in the Congo, it's really difficult. I don't want to go into too much details. But uh, unfor- uh, fortunately, my grandfather came to my rescue, took me to his village, and uh, taught me to be a good, good person in the community. So in the Congo, most people live with families, and your parents, you said divorced when you were eight? Yes. Uh, when I was eight, uh, they divorced, and uh, they had two kids, two boys and two girls. I don't know how they decide this because, uh, you know, in the Congo, you, uh, you don't have, they, uh, uh, the wife goes out of the house. So my mom left with my two sisters and uh, I, I left with my dad, with my, uh, my other brother. But uh, in our tradition, if you have an uncle, um, he has a right over you. So my uncle came to pick us so that we can work for him. Uh, unfortunately, I was just too little, so he picked up my elder brother. So I, I stayed with my father, who married another woman. I was calling her mom. She came with two kids, a boy and a girl, but those were the queen and the prince of my house. Um, it, was, it was a rough road for me. So you were very, you were very young. Only- I, I was very young. I was very young, yes. Um, I, and again, uh, in Congo, there's no law uh, at that time. So uh, I was doing all the chores at my house. Uh, I'll I'll go to fetch water for the family, clean. At the end of the day, you are the one who eats the leftovers. When school shopping comes, they'll go saying that, okay, stay and watch the house, we'll come back. When they come back, they didn't find the right size shoes for me. And then I'll get the leftovers for my uh, other uh, stepbrother so that I can go to school with. So it was difficult. And um, I was told when my mom left uh, where she went, she got married. But uh, later on in my life, I was told that she passed. I don't know how she did. And uh, I lost my two sisters. I don't know how they died, but uh, she had another child with a man she married. My, my, my uh, I call her my stepsister. Uh, she's still alive. And uh, when I stayed with my dad, uh, um, it was on May 13, 1978. This date is still in my head because uh, that changed my whole life. 
So May 13, 1978. Yeah, it was and, on a Saturday. And then what happened? Uh, I was, uh, I woke up in the morning because uh, I was that kid. Um, I was a pioneer. We used to sing and uh, dance for our dictator, Mobutu Sese Seko. Every Monday, we raise up the flag, and Saturday, we bring the flag down. So I was that pioneer in my grade school. Um, so um, on a Saturday, I had to go to school very early so that I can uh, prepare for the parade. But um, my dad was not home. He was working night. Uh, so uh, I was going to school. Then uh, I heard uh, one of my teachers shout, shouting my name, saying, where are you going? I said, I'm going to school. He said, go back home. Uh, don't you hear that uh, those are the gunfires? So it's a civil war. So I went back home. And the reason why I, I decided to go to school because uh, in my village, they taught us how to learn and interpret the sound of the drums. So sometimes uh, they're calling you for help in the other village or there's a party come feast with us. So we've been attacked uh, or there's a lion or an elephant. Uh, and this, this is all because of, all by the sound of the drums? You can actually hear that these yes, different things are happening? Yes, but that morning uh, the sound of the drum didn't make any sense to me. So that's why I decided to go. But I was told later on by my teacher that that's a civil war. And that was... Uh, that's when my life changed, really, because uh, after the Civil War, uh, the uh, International Red Cross came down, uh, consisting of American Red Cross and the European Red Cross. They came to help us. And um, I was that child again. I was working with the Red Cross, fetching water for them, and in return they would give me tinned food, so I would take home to my uh, stepmom. But when they left, um, she couldn't keep up with life because she, she was also poor, I think. She focused mainly on the two kids. That's when I decided to go into street because it was just too, too hard for me to live with her. So you were taking care of people in your family and even people that um, your stepmothers that your father had married from a very early age, from very young. And you were a pioneer in your community doing things for your school and the community. Yes, uh, um, I'm that, uh, I don't know, it's a gift of God, I think. It's not that something I learned. Working in my community, it's not something I went to school to learn. Uh, it's something which was in me. So I'm that person who can just act because I see something, not, I don't wait someone to tell me to do something. So uh, that's why my teachers at school, in, in uh, every home class, they, they would recognize my uh, leadership. So they would pick me to be the captain of the class, and later on I was a pioneer for the assembly. So um, the Red Cross, because we didn't have water, you have to fetch water. So again, I was curious to talk to them, you know. I, so uh, they would send me go bring water, and a couple of my friends really, we were doing that. Because the rebels won't shoot at the kids sometimes. That was the advantage. So if you were carrying the water, the rebels wouldn't shoot you? No, if you're a, a, a child. If you're a child. Yeah. So there was an advantage to taking on this additional amount yes, of work. Yeah, yes. Uh, so you take water for the Red Cross and they'll give you tin food. So we had a lot of supplies. So again, I would go back to my home and uh, we would enjoy the food. <laughs> but then was it hard for you to understand if you were this young and you were doing the work for your school and your community and the yeah. Red Cross, was it hard for you to go back home and see your stepmother not be able to handle life? Was it hard for you to understand that? Uh, when I was a kid, really, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of blames. Uh, why this? But uh, as of now, I've forgiven everyone. So looking uh, back as somebody who's 43, you yes. can look back and say... It's all right because of poverty. Maybe if she had enough, maybe she would have taken care of me. So I think that way. Yeah. So you were on the street by the time you were 10? Yes. And you have in your family a son, Maxwell, who's eight. Yes. Can you imagine him or any of your other three children being on the street at the age of 10? Yeah, that, that makes me cry, really, uh, even when I see... Uh, kids in America at that age, and um, you know, 
that's why we have to take care of our kids. I, I, I don't want to see my kids or anybody kids in the community to, to take my path. It was really difficult. And when I see my son, uh, I just say I have to work hard uh, to make sure that uh, it doesn't go that way because it's a rough road. Um, I was fortunate because um, in, the, in the street, you have um, rebels who come and grab the kids to take them into child soldiers movement. Mm. How I survive, I don't know. I give credit to God. Yeah, and um, so the rebels didn't grab you to bring you in to be a child soldier. Somehow you managed to escape that. Um, we knew, um, we knew, we sensed sometimes when we hear that um, some people lost their livestock because the rebels come. We know that they don't have supplies, so they are near. Uh, so we, we were sleeping in the tunnel, the water drainage. Uh, near Maria Polis, this is in Colwezi, and uh, I know that spot very well. I can go hide, nobody will find me, so even in, now. In a water tunnel? Yes, yeah, so um, we, we knew that um, the danger is coming. But again, some of my friends were taken into uh, child uh, soldier movement. But um, as I said, how I survived, how I escaped, I was not, uh, I was not better than any other kids. But uh, I give credit to God himself because he was protecting me. Do you think that not having this parental love from earlier on caused you to need to be more independent and courageous? Uh, in another way, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll give myself 85%. When I look back, I said, okay, I have to do better. It's not something which I'm going to use to give excuses to the community. I don't want to be a burden to the community because I didn't get parental love. So when I look back, I said, okay, it's happened, and it, it's happened for a purpose. And uh, Maybe if I had parental love, I would have not been here. So who knows? It's all the design of God. Um, I strongly believe that. But uh, I, again, I use that as a positive uh, inspiration in my life to be where I am today. And uh, that's why I look back to others. I want to inspire them and uh, to be where I am or maybe better than where I am today. How did you get out of the Democratic Republic of Congo? What was your journey from there to becoming a citizen very recently here in Maine? Um, first of all, it, it was... Um, it was really difficult because my, my uh, elder brother, when my uncle took him, so uh, they went to Lubumbashi, which is the, the capital city of my uh, uh, state, Katanga. So uh, he joined the military because in the capital city, when you come to age, you can willingly join the, uh, the military. So he was taller than me and huge. And how, how old was he when he joined the military in the capital uh, I city? don't really know at the exact age. But, but he was he taller was, than you. Yeah, he was four, four, he, he was four years older than me. So, um, so he, he was working under Mobutu regime all these years until 1997 when uh, Kabila came into power and oust Mobutu. So Kabila comes from my country. Oh, from from my state, uh, Katanga. So he was trying to recruit bodyguard from his state so that at least he can have that cushion. It's like you are from Maine, you are the president, you want at least someone you from you. Yes. Somebody you can trust. Yeah. So he's bringing a bodyguard around him yes. that he could trust. Yeah, so his main bodyguard was uh, Eddie Kapend. Um, he shared the same name with my family name. Eddie Kapend comes from my tribe, actually. So when he saw my brother also in the military and he was tall, huge, and they share the same name, so he recruited him to be the bodyguard of the president. Um, so after when my grandfather uh, took me to his village, I worked my way up. I graduated from school when I was 15, primary school. So I was selling candies in the street. Then I built a kiosk, uh, which is a market shift where you sell candies, bubble gums, and... So when my, my brother was in the military, helped me with some money uh, for my business. So the business grew, and when he became my bodyguard, he was having, of course, a lot of money. So he sent me uh, $5,000. Uh, 
So that was the main problem because uh, when the president was assassinated in 2001, uh, he was also implicated as a bodyguard saying that. Uh, so so your, he, he your was brother helped you out with money, helped you with the money for the kiosk, helped you yes. where you were selling things. But yes. when the president was assassinated, that they caused traced down, you know, they said his brother has got money. Of course, maybe they got money from someone. So I was coming from Tanzania from my business trip. I reached my border and uh, I was searched. Uh, I used to collect coins wherever I go outside my country just for my collection. I had a lot of them from Netherlands, South Africa, Switzerland. And I collected this uh, Rwandese money. I had it with me. Uh, it, it was just for my collection. But when I was searched, they find that money with me. They said, you went to Rwanda because the Rwandese helped my uh, former president, uh, my late president, Kabila, to oust Mobutu uh, Sese So they said, maybe I went to Rwanda again to organize so that I can take my brother out of prisons. And um, so... So you got in trouble because you had money from Rwanda, yes. even though it was just part of your coin collection. Uh, yes, yes. And at that time, um, my tribe, again, I didn't want to bring this, because my tribe and the Rwandese were fighting each other. Um, not that I was uh, involved directly. I'm a Christian. Uh, even here, I have a friend from Rwanda. And we, are, we mingle together very well. But uh, my tribe mate from Katanga, they were fighting with Rwandese. So at that time, it was odd for them to see me with uh, Rwandese money in my pocket. They say, you are Katangese. How? You went to Rwanda. Can you explain and come back alive? I said, I was not in Rwanda. I was in Tanzania. So they said, I, I lost uh, my goods at the border. My truck was confiscated, and they took me in prison. So from the prison, there was a pastor, because I was so much involved in the community. Again, people, when they heard that Max was in prison, they said, no, we're going to help him. So they took everything away from you? From the border, yes. From the border, and then they put you in prison. Yes, I was beaten overnight. I was tortured at the border, Kasumbalesa border. And how old were you? Um, I was uh, in 2002, uh, 34, 33, somewhere there. Okay. Yeah. So still pretty young. But the community didn't... Yeah, well, when they heard about that, you you know, you have people whom say, no, that... We can't let him. He's just innocent. So my pastor helped me and uh, sneaked me out of the country. Of course, we are border with Zambia, so took me to Zambia when he, uh, he arranged for the papers for me to come over here. So this is the pastor of your church? He was the pastor of my church, yes. And he arranged for you to cross the yeah. border and come to the United States? Yes. Did you come directly to Maine? Yes, uh, directly to men, because uh, my, my when I was in prison, when my pastor came to visit me, I asked him to take care of my family, because it, my, my, my shop was looted, closed, and uh, they went even to my house, interrogated my wife, and uh, uh, she was traumatized with my kids and my stepsister and the kids I was staying with, because I had a lot, lot of people staying at my place. Because in my country, when you are well-to-do people, you have your distant family staying with you. So um, when he told me that, I said, do something for them. So he took my wife first before he took care of me. So um, that's why I find myself here, because we heard that in Portland, you find uh, Congolese and uh, they'll take care of you. So when you were living there, you had two children? Yeah, uh, they were so young because my firstborn was born in 1997. Uh, so you had two young children yes. and your wife Sally, yes. and this was before they brought you to Maine. Yes. And you had to, you've already gone through now these beginnings in your life where your parents divorced, so you had to go to a different family. Yes. And then you had to, um, and then you lived on the street, and then you mm. had to create a new life for yourself with a kiosk. And yes. now you have to start all over again. Yes. How does it feel to come to Maine with two young children and a wife and to start over again? Yeah, actually, my, my, my kids came later in 2005. But, uh, so your did you, so your wife comes and you come Georgia, yeah. and you leave your children behind. Yes. And yeah. what what was that like? Uh, it was really difficult because uh, I was going through life and uh, sometimes that's why I said 
I gave myself 85, 85% because the 15% sometimes I tend to look back at my life when things are not uh, working well. I say, why me, Lord? Why me? Um, you know, you took me from uh, the street. You uh, brought me where I am. And now you're taking everything I had in my life. Again, I'm going to start afresh. Why me? But again, the 85%, it's that uh, inspiration I get from God uh, through my faith and uh I learned to be strong in every situation. Of course, losing my goods and my money, it was far much less than having life. Um, I'm still alive. I can work hard. I can have other goods. So um, I, put, I, I put everything aside and just trust in the Lord. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. To quote my oldest daughter, Sydney, come on, let's go, what are you waiting for? One year ago on my birthday, Shepherd Financial was founded. To say I chose my actual birthday to begin this endeavor would be about as accurate as saying that my life began on the day I was born. It'd be more accurate to say that if I had not chosen to go forward, then life would have squeezed me until I finally decided to move on. We reach points in our life where the pain of falling back is so great that we really have no choice but to go forward and pursue our dreams or risk a sort of dying. But you have prepared your entire life for that next step, and so had I. If you are in that place, all I can say is I hope that you don't let the price of that one step keep you from the value of the life you'll live after it. If you need help to deliver you to a new relationship with your money, send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Type in the subject, New Beginnings. Shepherd Financial, securities and advisory offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. And when you got here, not only did you come to a new country and have to learn a new language, but you also decided you were going to get an education in in this new country. So tell me about how that happened. You've actually, you have multiple degrees by now, fast forwarding, but you started back at Southern Maine Community College, is that right? No, actually, I uh, I was not even educated in my country. I was uh, almost a grade eight dropout because of hardship. My grandfather didn't have enough. Uh, to, in Congo, you have to have money to go to school. So, so, you, so this when you were fifteen and you graduated from primary school, yes. you still didn't have a high school degree at that point. I, I I did not. I did. So not. you went back and you did that when you came no, to no, the. No, I came to Portland, Maine, as a um, at the shelter, Mr. Dennis Cooper. He's now retired, I, I was told. So uh, he said, Maxwell, I'm having difficulties communicating with you. I'm going to refer you to Portland Adult Education for your ESL, English as a Second Language. So I took me to Portland Adult Education. I started the lowest English you can get. So whilst there, um, the director there, Mr. Robert Hood, um, just called me saying that I've seen something in you, you know, you are just different from other immigrant. Um, what is your education level? I said, no, I don't have high school diploma. So he said, okay, I'll put you into GED program. Uh, unfortunately, the city at that time could only pay for your ESL because they want you to speak the language, but they couldn't pay for my GED. But uh, Mr. Robert Hood took care of me. I give him all the credit for that. So you got somebody was able to support your the city yeah. paid yes. for the ESL, yeah. and then somehow Robert Hood found the money for your GED. Yes, and you made it through that. Yeah, 
But then you didn't stop. Yeah, I graduated with my GED in 2004. Then a lot of uh, teachers and mentors at adult education to help me to register with uh, Southern, uh, uh, Southern Men Community College, where I took the entrance exam uh, four times. The three times I was failing the exams because of the English language. But I didn't give up, and people, you know, were encouraging me, saying that you can make it. So the fourth time I passed that entrance exam. So in 2006, I started my journey at Southern Maine Community College. I graduated in 2006 with my um, HVAC uh, associate degree, which is uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration. So heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and refrigeration. Yes. So what did that enable you to do? Uh, to get a good job because uh, I was just a janitor at Maine Medical Center. Uh, I was working in the laundry, then I worked in VS cleaning, then I went in operating room. When I got my GED, that's when I got a job in operating room. So when I got my associate degree, I got a job with engineering department where I'm working uh, even now. So you were able to use your education yes. and keep working your way up. Yes, um, as my education was going up, so my work was going also up, up to uh, the HVAC uh, position, which I'm working right now. But you also have a master's degree in public policy management and finance. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's unusual. You went from HVAC to something very different. What, how did you decide to go into that? Uh, first, I have a bachelor's degree. You have a bachelor's degree. Yeah, in engineering and technology management. Okay. So because uh, I usually um, look at opportunities saying, what can I do? I I don't want to be a burden into the community all the time. People help me, but uh, I have to look ways how I can also help my community. I don't want to be a burden. I decided, okay, I'll go for for my uh, bachelor's degree. So I spent three years from 2006 to 2009. Uh, in School of Engineering and Technology in Gorham, where I graduated with my um, bachelor's degree. Uh, unfortunately, um, I don't want to go into politics, you know, uh, jobs are hard to find. So I didn't get a job with my <laughs> bachelor's. But uh, I decided, okay, I have to do something uh, related to what I am inside me. Who I am, um, someone was raised by the community. As we said in Africa, that it takes the village to raise its child. Um, that child was raised by the community. My grandfather worked hard, but a lot of people came in. And uh, even here in America, I find good people here. People who stood beside me, people didn't know me. They are not even my relatives. They just said, okay, we're going to help you. So me looking back saying that, why are these people helping me? Then I have to find voice where I can also uh, inspire other people in my community working in humanitarian work. So that's why I said, okay, I have to go with the public. So when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I decided to go and uh, pursue my master's in public service so that I can also work for the public and uh, help others. And all the while you're working at Maine Medical Center and you're supporting, now, now, by now you have four kids yes. and still a wife mm-hmm. and you're still learning and continuing and you're, and you're 43. Yes, yeah, so, uh, in nine years I've been working full-time, night shift, and uh, pursuing full-time uh, uh, college uh, classes. Uh, it's difficult, you know, taking four classes uh, with uh, limited English, it was difficult for me. Because now you're getting a PhD. Yeah, yeah, I just started with my PhD program at Walden University. Uh, it's also difficult, you know. Uh, now I'm getting older, it's not like when I was younger. You know, you can't just think normally. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, working full-time, attending school full-time, and uh, volunteering in my community. Other people, they say I volunteer full-time. Uh, and uh, parenting for kids, uh, it's really uh, difficult. Yeah, I want to go back to this volunteering piece. You've done work with Habitat for Humanity. Yes. And why was that important to you? Um it was important because when I just arrived here in America, I was looking for the ways uh, to, to give back to the uh, Red Cross I saw in my country when I was a kid. So I, I was just thinking that, you know, these people, they left their families and risked their lives to come and help us here. 
So when I arrived here, I asked um, uh, at a shelter where is the uh, Red Cross. So they took me to the blood bank in Forest Avenue. And uh, my supervisor was uh, Renata Diff. So I was working, you know, people, they come and donate blood. You take care of them. <laughs> but I said, no, no, no. I, there's uh, another type of uh, Red Cross. You know, you work with people, rescue them. Oh, wow, okay. So they referred me to uh, uh, Southern Main Chapter. So uh, that's where in 2004, I uh, started my training with American Red Cross volunteering as an international humanitarian coordinator. And now I'm just a DAT member, Disaster Action Team member. Um, again, um, Habitat of Humanity, because uh, we, we, not we, when I say we, it's not me, but Habitat of Humanity, we provide shelter for, for the needy families. So I saw myself in that regard. I was blessed, I, I bought my own house, but uh, what about other people? Are they working hard like I do? So that's what prompted me to go and uh, volunteer with Habitat of Humanity. Then uh, even at Main Medical Center, uh, up to last year, um, I was uh, volunteering four hours every week, even though I was working there for 40 hours. So I was working with a help program, uh, working with elderly people, you know, uh, just talk to them. It, it, it was a good program. When you put a smile in the face of patients, really, people appreciate that. And uh, I still volunteer, I volunteer a lot with the uh, uh, city of Portland. I'm in uh, GCBG program, uh, community grant, development grant. Uh, I'm also in uh, Portland Public Schools where I'm now serving uh, in transition team for a new superintendent. Um, so why all this volunteering? The answer is simple, because I want to give back. Uh, it says that if you don't have money, you can, you can even volunteer one hour a week. Uh, and I'm doing that. I don't have enough money, but uh, my work in the community I feel like I'm impacting lives. I've received a lot of cards from people just appreciating what I'm doing in the community. And if everyone can do what I'm doing now, I believe uh, our community will be better. So even if people don't have money or resources or maybe speak the language and maybe they don't even have an education or maybe they have a lot of children, it's always possible to give something. Yes, it's possible because, uh, look, you don't need to have money for you to inspire someone. You, you uh, when you just pick a school, go in grade four, just read for them for one hour. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but the brain of the kids in grade four, that's why it's developing much. So they'll have that picture of you in, in their entire life. So that's one hour. You're going to inspire people and you, you'll be in their picture for the entire life. Just can you imagine? So if you, if you don't know how to read, we have a lot of uh, places you can go, you know, volunteer for one hour at the soup kitchen. I've been there just to save me on the table, see how people really are. Uh, it's hard nowadays. So go to soup kitchen. You, you can do something. It's not that just money. No. I have a lot of questions that I could ask you, but I think I want to end with this one. You have, you're married to Sally. You have Sharon, Nahima, Emmanuel, and Maxwell. What are the lessons? You've provided them with a new beginning with them, for them in their own lives. What are the lessons that you hope that you are giving them or sharing with them, your children? Yeah, um, as my daughter, even at school, she's an ambassador. She's uh, been uh, selected. She's a vice president of the club. Uh, she, uh, I've taken her volunteering in the community, and even my son Emmanuel. Um, I'm looking at ways to see that uh, when they grow up, they become self-sufficient and uh, people who can also give back to the community in the sense that uh, you c they can volunteer if God blesses them with money and good jobs, they can also do that because it's in them. Um, I was just uh, laughing at myself the other day, saying that, okay, we came from the Congo, we said, okay, now we, we are in America, we're still uh, struggling to find jobs, and but uh, the answer came saying that, oh, I'm the first one here, so I have to pave ways for my kids. So my kids 
so that my kids, they become better and not really the burden to the community. So uh, that answer really struck in my head. I said, wow, I'll continue to inspire them to be uh, uh, good people in the community. People at Lamont Mall, where my son goes, they really appreciate that. Every time I go there, they say, wow, your, your son is just amazing. He's got that leadership quality. He's a captain in his soccer team. Um, so I, I thank God for that. Part of that is the faith and um, uh, introduce them to God when they're still kids. Uh, that just me. And um, I'm telling them that uh, the community, it's not only race, religions, or gender. Uh, the community is colorless. And uh, this year we received an uh, exchange student from Japan in our house. And despite that, I have a lot of kids in my house, but we still receive her. We took care of her, show her places. And uh, why? Because I wanted my kid to see that uh, when they grow up, they don't have that attitude to see the color or gender or anything, but to see that the world we are all equal and respect the humanity, as I was taught by my grandfather. That's why uh, I'm trying to see my four kids. And other students have uh, help uh, at the learning centers, like in Kennedy Park. I, I told them the same thing, saying that uh, we really need to see that we are blind as far as uh, helping is concerned. That's why I'm saving into the public, because the public, it's defined by all uh, definition I just gave you for the race, gender, faith, group. So uh, I, I mix with uh, Muslims, and uh, they are the ones who have nominated me to ICL, uh, Institute for Civic Leadership. But I'm a Christian. So uh, people look at me and say, you are a Christian, but how come you playing with Muslims? No, we are all equal in, in, into God's sight. So that's why I want to see my kids also take the same path and uh, live uh, better in, in our community. Well, Maxwell, I am very privileged to have spent time talking with you today, and I, I really appreciate your sharing these minutes with me and telling me your story. Um, we've been speaking with Maxwell Chikuta, who former resident of the Democratic Republic of Congo, but now a Maine resident and U.S. Yeah. citizen. Yes, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm now uh, American. We share same value. And I pray to God that I continue to respect and uh, work in this uh, community. Uh, if you can just allow me, let me just take a few minutes to appreciate few people who really helped me, like uh, you just mentioned about my citizenship. I would have not been here today uh, if it was not for ILAP, uh, Immigration Legal Advocacy. They, they really helped me with my asylum papers, and they introduced me to this uh, wonderful lawyer, Mr. James O'Keefe, and uh, Margaret. Uh, so they took care of me. Uh, they drove me to Boston like two, two times, and uh, I'm here because of these people, and all those people help me with my school. If it's editing my uh, <laughs> my homeworks, uh, I, I can't really mention everyone, but really I do appreciate my community, and thank you very much. God bless you. Continue to do what you do good in the community, and Dr. Lisa, I appreciate your time with me. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, the Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774 2196 and get started with the body architect today and by dr john herzog of orthopedic specialists in falmouth maine at orthopedic specialists ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree with state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment small areas of tendonitis muscle and ligament tears instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination for more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we speak often about the health of a community. 
And today's show is about new beginnings, people who come into our community from somewhere else. And thus their health and the health of their families becomes important to a community. And one of the things that's very important is um, the things that enable them to get, have good health, which is things like legal rights. In Maxwell Chikuta's interview, he mentioned that he was um, helped out in great part by the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. So we're thrilled today to be able to have across the microphone from us, Sue Roche, who is the legal director of ILAP, the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project here in Portland. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Lisa. Why is it important for us to have an organization like ILAP, or the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project here in Portland? Sure. Well, ILAP is the only organization in Maine that helps immigrants in their immigration cases. And it's really important because uh, immigrants aren't provided with free representation. Like in a criminal case, people can get an attorney, whereas in the immigration system, you're not provided an attorney. The immigration laws are very complicated, and often, even if somebody is very educated, they can't uh, understand the laws are changing every day, and the procedures can be very complicated. So it's often uh, really essential that they have an attorney who can help them through that process. And without having immigration status, they're not going to be able to then work or go to school and do the other things that are really important um, in their lives. What are some of the specific legal challenges that people who are immigrants might mm-hmm. face that people who were born in this country or already have citizenship um, already have access to? Well, certainly. I mean, I think the most important thing is work authorization. Um, Somebody who doesn't have um, permanent legal status isn't authorized to work. Uh, For example, even somebody in the process sometimes isn't. Somebody might have fled Rwanda because of persecution and they have a right in the United States to apply for asylum. Uh, There's a long process that they have to go through for that. It often will take um, time for them to even find a lawyer, and then once they have a lawyer, a lot of time to prepare their application. And then once they've filed their application with immigration, it takes another six months before they can even work. So during that entire time, they're not able to work, they're not able to um, support themselves, so that can be a real challenge. And when people come to this country, I mean, Maxwell talked about being supported by um, the pastor in his country and coming over here, and there was a Congolese community already in place. Um, What about people who come as individuals and there's not a community readily available for them? What what is that like for them? It's really a challenge, and people are often living um, homeless for a while. They, um, yes, it can be very challenging. If they don't have family members here, they don't have a community, they really have to sort of start from scratch, and um, it can be a real challenge. How do you deal with the language barriers that sometimes come into this situation? Certainly. I mean, that's a real challenge for a lot of people who come to the country uh, who don't speak English. They, um, it's much more difficult for them to communicate with everyone. There's often not translation services everywhere. At ILAP, we have uh, attorneys on staff who speak Spanish. We have a Somali speaker on staff. Uh, and we have interpreters for um, work with other clients. But in terms of just sort of getting along in day-to-day life, it can be a real challenge if you don't speak English. And then also, even once people are authorized to work, it can be very difficult to find jobs. They may have been you know, a doctor back home, but here they don't have the English skills or the credentials to be able to do that. What are some of the biggest, um, well, let's just say communities. I, I, I know you said Somali. Mm-hmm. Sure, what are yeah. some of the other communities that exist right now within mm-hmm. greater Portland and Maine? Sure. Well, it's interesting, actually. I was um, speaking at a symposium for the um, bar meeting last winter, and we sort of it was on the changing population in Maine, the, the, the aging and the growing immigrant population, and we looked at a lot of numbers and pulling out some census data from 2000 and 2010, Um, There's been a 20% increase in foreign-born individuals during that time period. Um, Less than, uh, or one-third of Maine's foreign-born population has been here for less than 10 years. It's a real um, growing immigrant population. And just looking at the um, individuals, there was a 529% increase in African-born individuals, 43% increase in Asians, and 62% increase in the Latin American population. And then just looking back at the numbers for ILAP, I mean, in t- 2000, we only had two, <coughs> excuse me, only had two staff persons, and it was the beginning of, of ILAP. And that was the first year that I was there, so we had a, a smaller client base. But just looking at the changes, in 2000, our top three countries were Mexico, Honduras, and the U.S. It was U.S. citizens who were filing for family members. In 2010, it was Somalia, Iraq, and Sudan, where um, Somalia was only 3% of our population in 2000, and we were 23% in 2010. And um, other um, 
growing populations. We've seen a lot of Burundis and Rwandan, Burundians and Rwandans and Congolese uh, in recent years. But it's been a real interesting shift in a lot. Our uh, Latin American population has been staying about the same or growing a, a little bit, but the, there's been a large growth in the African populations. So that's an interesting challenge. I mean, your organization has been around a little bit more than a decade, Mm -hmm. and it's a little bit like shifting sands. No sooner are you kind of familiar with one group and their cultural um, situation and their challenges and advantages, than another group comes along and they have an entirely different set of um, background. So how has that felt as an attorney practicing within the system for a decade? Well, it's actually really nice. Um, I mean, they all, interestingly, even, even though people come from different cultures and different countries and different backgrounds, they all have the same issues. They all want to be together with their families. They want to be safe. They want to be working. They want to be productive members of the community. And being able to meet people from lots of different countries is really um, a great benefit. And I think it's a great benefit to our community. People come in and bring new thoughts and new cultures and they start businesses and um, a lot of immigrants are likely to sort of stay around their families so I think it really adds to our community to um, have people who are staying in Maine instead of moving out of state for jobs so I think it really adds a lot. Well and you mentioned people come coming from other countries who might be a doctor in their mm-hmm. country so we talk about the brain drain people leaving our state mm-hmm. being educated and leaving or, um, or growing up and leaving but we're bringing in very educated people from and sometimes other parts of the world. Yes. How has this influenced sort of the, the fabric of our culture, do you think? Uh, well, I think it's a great thing. I mean, one of the unfortunate things is that they're often not able to find jobs in their fields, and they're often very <laughs> overqualified for the jobs that they have, but they do really bring a lot of, um, you know, a lot to our communities, and they're, you know, starting lots of businesses. Maxwell's a great uh, example who, um, you know, even if they don't come here with a lot of education, they come here with this real enthusiasm and desire to um, live the American dream, and they will go to school, and they'll work hard. They really want to um, make sure that their families are doing well, and Maxwell's a great oper- example where he came here, he got his high school diploma, he got his college degree and his master's, and now is going on to get a Ph.D., and I think that really has so much to offer to our community here. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Sea Bags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Sea Bags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Visit the Seabag store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. And by Booth, accounting and business management services, payroll and bookkeeping. Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information. And by Robin Hodgkin, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in Portland, Maine. For all your investment needs, call Robin Hodgkin at 207-771-0888. Investments and services are offered through Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC, member SIPC. Now, ILAP is relatively young as an organization. You described you didn't you had, I guess, two or three yeah. attorneys early on. Mm-hmm. And, and how many attorneys do you now have? How many staff? We have 11 staff now. So this must be an organization. It doesn't sound like this is, um, it doesn't sound like you can do this for free. No. <laughs> so how do you deal with fundraising, and where does the money come from? Um, sure. Well, we have a mix of funders from recurring grants through the Main Bar Foundation and United Way to private foundations and our annual fund of individual um, donors. We don't receive any government funding, so we're, ind- we're dependent on grants and individual donations. And we also have an annual event, Sela um, Soiree, that happens every spring. So if people wanted to come to Sela Soiree or if they wanted to donate to your organization, how would they find you? Um, they can find us on the internet at www.ilapmain.org. So I-L-A-P-M-A-I-N-E dot O-R-G. And is it easy enough for people who are out in the community um, who need your services to find you as well? 
Um, yes, they can. Um, I mean, people who don't have internet access can call us. We do have um, intake every Friday where we take new clients between 9 and 1. People can either call our office at um, 207-780-1593, or they can come into our office if they're in the Portland area. During intake, we sort of assess what people's needs are, and then we determine whether they need a consultation with an attorney, and then they'd be set up for an appointment with an attorney. Sometimes they're ready to fill out a form, and they just need assistance with that, so we'll schedule an appointment for them to fill out a green card or citizenship application. Um, and then um, some people have legal complications, and through our consultation, we may determine that they actually need an attorney and then might end up representing them. What are some lessons that you've taken away from doing the job that you've done? What are some of the things that have really hit you the hardest over the last decade of working in this field? Well, I think one of the most difficult things is realizing that you can't help everyone. I mean, being the only organization in the state, uh, the difficult for thing for us is if we turn anyone away, there's nowhere else for them to go. And that's something we've really struggled with since I've been there is sort of um, learning how to say no to people. And it's, it's very difficult. We still haven't learned how to. Um, but trying to, to find that balance of making sure that we um, do the very best job in the cases that we have and not sacrificing the quality and then also trying to help as many people as we can and we're constantly working on that balance. And how about you as an individual person? Um, well, I've learned that um, you know the amazing journeys that people have uh, to come to the United States, the things that they give up, I mean, it's really quite a brave thing to be able to leave everything you know, your language, your culture, your job, your property, and to come to a new place where you have no idea what you're going to find. Often people leave family members behind. And just really seeing the, uh, the human spirit and how strong people are and how resilient and then watching them flourish once they get here is really a, a wonderful thing to see. And I think Maxwell is a great, a great example of that. Well, Sue, I appreciate your spending time talking with me today. And I would encourage people who are interested in finding more about ILAP to go to ilapmaine.org, which we will also put up on the Dr. Lisa website. Um, thank you for taking the time to, um, well, really dedicating your legal career thus far to helping people come to this country and set up a new and healthy and vibrant um, community in which to live. This, this means a lot, I'm sure, to the people that you help, but also the people around the people that you help. So. I appreciate your talking with me about this today. I've been speaking with Sue Roche, from, who is the legal director of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project here in the Portland area. Great, Lisa. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 68, New Beginnings, airing for the first time on December 30th, 2012. Our show included... Discussions with new U.S. citizen Maxwell Chikuda, formerly of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Susan Roche, legal director of the Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project. Find out more about our guests on doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's shows, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, Dr. Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being and living on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.org. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of our show and if you have suggestions for future shows. I personally love to hear from you at The Body Architect. If you want to give us a call over there, it's 774-2196. Also, please let our sponsors know that you heard about them on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. We wish all of our sponsors a very happy 2013, and in fact, we wish all of our listeners a very happy 2013 as well. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that our show will inspire new beginnings in your life. Thank you for letting us be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Robin Hodgkin at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. 
The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. It is produced by Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. <laughs>